Today's reading is from Exodus 33 and 34. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Amen. Well, I thought it might be helpful for me to begin this particular message on that passage of Scripture uh, with, with kind of a confession. And the confession is that as amazing as that story is, and it really is an amazing story, I hope we can at least all agree on that. I mean, you might not yet fully understand what's going on in the story, and I'll explain it in a second. And you may not even believe that it happened, but if you step back from it and just look at the story in and of itself, it's a pretty awesome event. Okay, so as awesome and amazing as that story is, it's still a story that at least for me is difficult to relate to. And I think the reason for that is pretty obvious. And the reason is that I'm just, you know, not Moses. And a little clue for you, neither are you. And so I kind of look at this story and I go, man, you know, I am not like this great historic, you know, titanic figure that you find in the Bible. And for that matter, that you find in history, whom God met with on a regular basis in some kind of physical manifestation. He met with him in the cloud again and again and again. And God called up onto Mount Sinai again and again. And who here... God reveals at least some measure of his glory to, I'm not that guy. So then I watch this story take place and I think to myself, man, I mean, it just leaves me wanting. It leaves me kind of jealous, frankly, of Moses. Like, I want that, you know? And it leaves me wondering what kind of an experience of the presence of God that I, as a regular person, certainly more regular than Moses, can expect to have. What can you expect to have? Well, for the answer to that, I think, first of all, we need to understand the backstory on this story. We need to look at the story kind of in its fullness and really understand what's happening. And then in addition to that, having done that, we need to step back and look at this story in light of the New Testament and in light of all that we have in Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who are we 
in Jesus. What has he accomplished for us? Because suddenly we will not be all that jealous of Moses, honestly. When we realize what we have, it's remarkable. So the backstory on the story, if you were with us last week, is that Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai, and he went up onto Mount Sinai by himself. Why? To receive from the hand of the Lord a written copy of the law of God. And while the people of God, all of the Israelites, are encamped there out in the wilderness, out in the desert, at the foot of Mount Sinai, waiting for Moses, in fact, waited, but they didn't expect that they were going to have to wait all that long. They're thinking, yes, it will take him hours to walk up the mountain. Yes, it will take him hours to walk down the mountain. He's getting on in age at this point, you know, so it might take him a little longer than your average guy. Uh, But how long is the transaction itself going to take? I mean, the Lord God created the heavens and the earth in six days. Surely he can just go, boom, here's my law. Here's a cup of water, you know. Here's a piece of bread. See ya, be on your way. Power bar, none of that, you know. So they were expecting days maybe, two days, maybe three. Okay, on day 39, they just gave up. They concluded that Moses was obviously lost, Moses had left, or in all likelihood, Moses had died. You know, it was either the walk that killed him, or maybe he got out of line in the presence of God, and that killed him, but Moses was not coming back. And so instead of then waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord, who's been leading them all of this time, granted through Moses, but nevertheless, waiting for him to give them the provision that they need, and the protection that they need, and the guidance that they need. Instead, they went to Moses' brother Aaron, and they said, okay, so uh, we're in the market for a new God, buddy, and, and we just were thinking, you're the guy to make him for us, so make us a God. We'll be back in a little bit. And he did. He made them a golden calf. And then he built an altar, and he declared a feast on the next day to this new God, and they had their feast. And meanwhile, God's up on Mount Sinai with Moses, who hasn't left and who isn't lost and who's very much alive. And God says to Moses, good grief, would you look at this people? Can you believe this? Okay, so here's the deal. Moses, I'm out. That's it. I've had enough. I'm just going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. It's what they deserve. And Moses said, Lord, you know, can we just slow down for a second? I mean, can I just, can I talk with you a little bit about this? Can we take a step back from this for a second? I want to think this through, first of all, in light of your reputation, because if you just wipe these guys out, I mean, what is the world going to think of you? What will the Egyptians whom you delivered them from, for example, say, because they're going to declare to the whole world that you only delivered them to bring them out into the wilderness to then wipe them out? It doesn't work. What about your promises? Because you made promises to Abraham, and you made promises to Isaac, and you made promises to Jacob, the fathers of this nation of people who, yeah, I mean, they're way out of line. I get it, okay? But but the fathers of these people you made promises to, and the promise was that you would give to this group of people, this same group, a land that you've described as flowing with milk and honey. What does that mean? It means that it's sweet. It means that it's abundant. It's full of peace and prosperity, and it's finally theirs. Lord, might you reconsider? And the Lord said, I I, I will reconsider. So I'm not going to wipe them out. So you can check that box, okay? And here's what I will do. I will keep my promise about the land. So I'll bring them up into the land, and I will send my angel before them in battle, and there will be no one who can stand against them as they move up into the land. All of those different nations that all end with the word ites, you know, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, 
are all going to be powerless before this people because I will give them power. And in giving them power and in clearing the land of the inhabitants, they will what? They will gain beautiful cities that they did not build. They will, they will live in homes that are magnificent that they did not buy. They will reap crops that they did not sow. They will be powerful. They will be wealthy. But here's what I will not do. I will no longer live in their midst. I'm not going to do that. I've been with you in some kind of manifestation since we left Egypt. I led you by day in a cloud, of, uh, in a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. I've done that. I've had you construct the tabernacle, which is placed in the middle of the camp of Israel and all 12 tribes very symmetrically camp all around me. I've done that, but I'm done with that. So Moses, a little rehearsal. Here's my offer. I will give this people power. I will give this people wealth. I will give them abundance and peace and all of these different things. I'll bring them up into the land and I will allow them to enjoy all of my great gifts without at the same time having to have their lives revolve around me because I'm no longer going to be with them. There's my offer. What do you think? And I thought I'd ask you what you think of that. It's a curious offer, isn't it? So I get all the gifts, I get everything that I want from God, and I don't have the accountability of having the giver of the gifts, that is to say God himself, living in my midst while I enjoy all of the gifts that I get from him. That's pretty doggone tempting, I think, if we're really honest. Most people, I think, would look at that and go, hey man, that's kind of living the dream, you know? Like, that's, that's it, that's amazing. Moses is not so enamored. Do you remember the history of Moses? Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. He was a prince of Egypt until he was about 40. So think about that. This man knew power and he knew wealth and he knew peace and prosperity and all of that stuff far more so than all of us collectively times a thousand. Really. Like he totally got it. And yet he looks at this offer and says, look, if you're not going to be with us, leave us here. We'll just stay in the wilderness. You'll stay with us here, right? Like, as we'll stay here in the desert before we'll go into that kind of peace and prosperity, but without you. And he gives us the reason for that in verse 16. And it has everything to do with identity. He says, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? There it is. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Translation, he's saying, God, I'm not going to take this deal because here's the thing. In losing you, we lose our very selves for what makes us unique, what makes us distinct, what makes us matter as a people amidst all of the other people groups of this world is not power and wealth. Frankly, that's not all that unusual. The Egyptians have that. The Assyrians have that. The Persians have that. It's like, Lord, I can give you a long list. What makes us matter, what separates us from everyone else, what makes us unique and distinct, our identity, is the fact that we uniquely amongst all of the people groups on the planet possess the presence of the living God. That's a remarkable thought. Lord, you and nothing else are our identity. So if we lose you, we're done. We lose everything. And I want to ask you this morning, what is your identity? What is the thing without which you're done? 
You lose everything. And I ask that because I, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that two of the things that we most commonly look to as human beings, and we all of us struggle with this, all of us, whether we have them or not, we struggle with this, are power and wealth. And we look to these things, guys, for our identity. And here's what I mean by that. We look at these things and we think to ourselves, okay, if I can just collect up, gather up, hoard up for myself, whatever you want to say, enough of one or two or even better, both of these things, then at some point, I will no longer just be an anybody. At some point, I will be a somebody. And so what do we do? Well, here's the deal. We all want to be a somebody every person on the planet. And so then day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, we chase after glory, professional glory, financial glory, athletic glory, academic glory, social glory, artistic glory. In other words, we throw ourselves into achievement and excellence, not just for the sake of achievement and excellence, but so that by achievement and excellence, someone, somewhere, hopefully more than just one person, but we'll start with one, will come to us and go, wow, you know what? You are really amazing. I have noticed that you are unique, you are distinct, you, well, you actually matter as a person. That's how we hear it. And oh, that feels good. We need that, don't we? Parenthetically, we do the same thing with love. You know, we we work so hard to try to get somebody to love us subconsciously because we're trying to fill a need in our own hearts as opposed to give our own lives away. And what is that need? So when somebody says, I love you, what, what does that communicate? It communicates, man, you're amazing. You're like, you're incredible. You know what? You're unique. You're distinct. You matter as a person. And yet having been offered two of the most common things that we as people look to in order to prove that we're somebody's as opposed to just anybody's, Moses is utterly unsatisfied with this offer unless at the same time it also comes with the presence of God. And the reason for that is very simple. Moses understands something about glory and he understands that apart from the loving presence of God, all the other glory offers in this world are fading. Every other glory is fading and not just because they're common, but because they end And so you think you have them, and you do have them, you know, until the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year, or let's just say it, the next life. And how long is this life really? I mean, compared to eternity. You have it until then. And then when you lose it, what do you lose? Because you don't just lose that person and you don't just lose that thing. You lose you. And why is that? Because that person or that thing is the very thing or person that you have looked to in order to establish your identity, in order to be able to say, you know what, I'm a a somebody because I have this person or I have this thing. And Moses is going, no, that doesn't work for me. So the Lord comes and he says, look, I'm going to give you power, I'm going to give you wealth, I'm going to give you peace and prosperity and all of that kind of stuff, and I'm even going to give you the ability to enjoy it all without me being in the center of your life. So you don't have to revolve everything around me, knock yourself out, what do you think? And Moses says, listen, I know that most people think that that's living the dream, but that in the end at least is a total nightmare. That's not good enough for me. God, what we want and what we need is you. And here again... God says, all right, okay, I've reconsidered. So Moses is on a roll. He's batting a thousand. This is the time to ask for the new car, right? I mean, this is it. 
This is it. This is the time to go big. And so he goes as big as it can get. In verse 18, he then continues and he says, Lord, show me your glory. And I love that. It is the most audacious request ever made, probably. But it's born out of a heart that wants to see the beauty of the Lord. I mean, how can you fault him for this? It's remarkable. Lord, show me your glory, you know, but what does that even mean? Show me your glory. It sounds nice, but what is that? Like, what is the glory of the Lord? Well, theologians come to us and they tell us that the glory of the Lord is the sum total of all of the attributes of the Lord. In other words, it's the aggregate, the sum total of all of the things that make God, God, which is helpful, but it still begs the question of, okay, but then what are those things? Like, what are the attributes? And the authors of the Westminster Shorter Catechism back in the 17th century effectively asked that same question. They asked the question, what is God? Not who, but what is God? And then after carefully searching the Bible together, they came up with this answer. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like I do, like you do. He is a spirit, now follow along, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But they left one out. And I'm not the only one who thinks this, okay? Otherwise, I'd be like, oh, yeah. They left out love. Now, why do I say that? Because they're asking the question, what is God? And the Apostle John specifically says, God is love. So let's rehearse. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, Power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and love. So when Moses says to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory, what is he saying? He's saying, I want to see all of that. (laughs) And I want to see it in all of its infinite measure. And God responds in verse 19. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my, what, face, significant. But why? For sinful man is the idea shall not see a perfect man live. He's saying, listen, Moses, you're amazing. You're a great and titanic character in the Bible. You know, I mean, even in history, like, is there anyone like you in a lot of ways? Really, he is pretty extraordinary. But I am an infinitely holy God, and even you are flawed. Even you are selfish. Even you are broken. Even you are dishonest at times, Moses. Even you fail in your faith and And it would utterly consume you to see my face, which represents the fullness of everything that is me. Hang on to that. In chapter 34, verse 5, we read that the Lord then descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there on the mountain and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, comma, but a God who also will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, you know, and you hear that and you think, man, couldn't you have stopped at the comma? You know, like, come on. It was going well and then, you know, that was it was awesome until it wasn't. 
visiting the sin and the iniquity and the third and the like why in the world does god have to do that why can't god just go out oh, you know what let's just forget all the stuff okay we're just we're just i'm just going to declare it declare it all good and the answer to that is because he is good and we've talked about this in the past, but one of the things that we all of us most long for in life is justice. And I'm telling you straight up, if we get to like into eternity, and if not in this life, then in eternity, God just says, eh, forget it. We're not going to worry about any of that stuff that happened in your life or the lives of these people that you knew and loved or anyone else in the world. Like we're just, all the injustice, we're just going to pretend like it didn't occur. You and I are going to be ticked. And we're not going to believe for one second that God is good, because he won't be. Guys, justice exists specifically because God is good. Because God is good, therefore there must be justice. There has to be. There's no getting around it. And because God is perfectly good, well, then he must bring perfect justice. And that's the catch, isn't it? Because none of us are perfectly just. Just like we're not perfectly unselfish or perfectly honest or perfectly anything. Wouldn't you agree? Which means, gulp, that we too need to deal with the justice of the Lord on our own personal levels. And so then what do we do? Well, that's where we go to the New Testament. That's where we turn to Jesus, who is God made man come into the world to receive the justice we deserved so that we can receive the love of God full on and without fear. That's the idea. See, in Christ, the love of God, which is one of his infinite attributes, it's part of his infinite glory. And the justice of God, another part of his infinite glory, both of which consist in the same God and both of which must be affected. They come together for us at the cross. For God so loved that he gave his son. To do what? Suffer and die for his own injustices? No, he's the only perfectly just man who's ever lived. He suffered and died for mine. He suffered and died for yours. Oh, and the selfishness and the dishonesty and, 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 and praise Jesus. It's wonderful. It's remarkable. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 6, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the, here it is, glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means that we don't need to be jealous of Moses. It means that God has not left us wanting. Moses got only the back of God, if you will. He, he got the afterglow of his glory going by. Who and what do we get? Because we are utterly forgiven, we can come into the presence of Almighty God without fear of being consumed and in the person of Jesus Christ look Him straight in the face. That is our eternal vision. That is a remarkable and an incredible thought. And it's true because on the cross, Jesus, bearing our guilt, endured the agony of having His Father turn His face away. So that having suffered and died and taken away our guilt, God could for forever cast his loving gaze upon all who receive the forgiveness and life that is found through faith in Jesus. And then what does he do, guys? He fills us with his spirit. 
Who are the people in the world today who uniquely possess the presence of the living God, not in a tabernacle, but living within us by His Spirit? That would be us. And He empowers us not to go out and battle people whose names end in the word ites. But He empowers us to go out and lay our lives down after the sacrifice of Jesus and His example to reach people and to share with them the same infinite glory that is ours solely by grace and faith in Him. So I close with this. What, in your opinion, makes you a somebody as opposed to an anybody? And what's the real answer? What is it? Because whatever it is, it is your identity. And if it's anything other than the loving gaze of God that is yours through faith in Jesus, then a day is coming on which you will not only lose that person or that thing, but on which you will lose you. Because that's what makes you unique. That's what makes you distinct. It's what makes you matter. And God is calling you to something so much greater. And then secondly, is the presence of God a reality in your life? Because His presence is alone what can authentically make you unique and distinct and matter in this world and in the next. And it's yours freely through faith in Jesus. Okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, um, for your spirit and for your word. God, we thank you that in it we find life and light. For in it we find the love of a father who so loved that in the person of Jesus Christ, he gave us the remedy for all of the injustice that we have done, for the selfishness that we have lived out, for all our failures, Lord, and flaws, little and big. And in that Jesus, finding that forgiveness, being made new and washed and made clean, our eternal vision is the face of the living God, the very definition of beauty, the most moving and infinitely so object in the universe. And our mission now is to be filled with your Spirit and to live as your distinct people amongst all of the peoples of the earth, inviting as many as we can into the same experience that we enjoy solely by your grace. So Lord, we pray that you would give us grace by which to see that and humility by which to embrace that and then power by which to live that out. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.